1: It was one of the largest publicly known defamation settlements in US history. Last week, Fox News and voting machine manufacturer Dominion agreed to terms right before a trial was about to start into the media companies spreading the lies about the role of the machines in leading to the so called illegitimate election of Joe Biden as president. Fox will pay Dominion over $780 million US, and the settlement means that there will not be a public trial that would have put prominent Fox hosts on the witness stand and revealed further details about the the inner workings of the organisation. Paddy Manning is a journalist and author of a biography on Lachlan Murdoch called The Successor and joins us now on the line. Paddy, welcome to Triple R. Thanks. And so first up, how are you dealing with the news that we won't have more of Fox's dirty laundry aired in public?
2: Uh, Well, I was looking forward to it, I've got to say. It was billed as the media trial of the century. However, I was going to have to turn nocturnal uh, and dial into uh, six weeks of hearings in Delaware uh, through a public line um, from my study in uh, my home in Sydney. So that was going to be pretty hardcore, to be honest. And I was sitting up at 1am waiting for the trial to reconvene on... uh, was our Wednesday morning um, uh, which was Tuesday in the States. And, uh, and yeah then we get the shock news that the case is off. But I think we've seen a lot of extraordinary evidence already in the discovery process. And so there are some suggestions, including from uh, the Dominion CEO, John Poulos, in an uh, op-ed in the New York Times over the weekend, which uh, suggests, you know, he's saying we weren't expecting a whole lot more in terms of bombshell evidence. So um, we have seen already a hell of a lot uh, of the workings of Fox News, and all the way to the top to the Murdochs themselves, as well as their, you know, chief executives and their, um, and their, you know, biggest stars uh, in their controversial kind of prime time uh, opinion slots, like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. So we've we've learned a lot through this case already.
0: What what's your take on why they settled?
2: Uh, I think they settled ultimately because... Uh, you know, rulings were, look, I, was, I should say uh, that I was I was surprised uh, with, the, with the rest of the media uh, we were expecting and had been all backgrounded and guided to expect uh, from both sides that uh, this case would go uh, to trial uh, and the judge had indicated uh, on the Sunday evening US time uh, that there was an attempt to settle but by the Tuesday morning when he had the jury empanelled uh, Eric David Davis was the judge? Uh, everyone's assumption was that settlement negotiations had failed, and uh, and so that and so the trial was going ahead. The jury was impaneled, and uh, and now I think a, a lot of the commentary uh, that we've seen since, that despite the stag- staggering size of the payment, um, there was. Uh, you know, seven hundred and eighty-seven million dollars US. That's about one point two billion dollars Australian. Fox can't afford it. And uh, a piece I just wrote for the Saturday paper over the weekend. One of the one of the people I spoke to was suggesting that there's an important commercial backdrop here. Apart from the desire to um, to just kind of draw a line under the Dominion case, there are also important carriage-free uh, contract renewals that Fox is negotiating at the moment in the United States, and they couldn't that it, that were three. $3 billion dollars combined according to some estimates and uh, and they couldn't afford to have six weeks of negative headlines in the middle of those negotiations so that's one theory the other theory is that the, the pretrial rulings from Judge Eric Davis in Delaware were, were going against Fox. So he ruled against, He ruled that the statements that, you know, Dominion voting machines that were put to air um, on Fox uh, were flipping votes from Trump to Biden in the 2020 election. Uh, they were base force claims that went to air from, you know, Trump's advisors Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. And... Uh, and the judge ruled that they were defamatory per se. He also... They, so uh, the only thing that was left to the jury to decide, because it's a jury trial, remember, was that whether, they, whether Fox had showed actual malice. But the other thing that the judge had ruled in pre-trial hearings was that... Um, Fox could not rely on the inherent newsworthiness of the claims, which is the protection that's afforded to the free press under the First Amendment, um, uh, the way the First Amendment is interpreted in a landmark ruling from 1964 called New York Times v. Sullivan. So that's uh, just a backdrop to say that the pretrial hearings were not going... Fox's way and they were the last thing if I could mention was a a ruling that um, last week that uh, the judge made to investigate to appoint a special master to investigate why Fox had not disclosed through the discovery process um, that Rupert Murdoch was in fact an executive at Fox News, not just a non-executive and so uh, so things weren't going well for Fox in the lead-up and there's an important commercial backdrop and they've decided to, to uh, even though they thought that they had a decent chance, especially if they ultimately appealed any adverse ruling in the um, in the first instance in Delaware, they appealed that to the conservative-dominated Supreme Court of the United States They had where they expected that they might win. But that would take years and they've decided instead to pay this huge uh, defamation assist. uh,
1: Yeah, and it's important to have that that backdrop, I suppose, because, you know, of course, in the United States, defamation action proceeds quite differently to how it does in Australia. It's sort of generally much easier for the media and journalists to defend defamation lawsuits because of the sort of, um, you know, constitutional protection of free speech And the like. But if we kind of hone in on on what we've learned through some of the revelations in the lead up to the trial, um, you know, commencing, even though it didn't actually happen. um, I mean, what what were some of the most damning things to come out of that in terms of the, the text message and the communications and emails between Fox executives and some of their prominent anchors?
2: I think what was most damning is to reveal that none of, neither the Murdochs nor their, you know, key executives like the chief executive of Fox News um, Suzanne Scott, who was appointed after the downfall of Roger Ailes um, at the instigation of Lachlan Murdoch actually. Uh, but uh, but from the Murdochs to from Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch to Suzanne Scott to their key primetime anchors, you know, like Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram, uh, none of them believe the stolen election claims that um, Trump's advisers, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, were making. They thought Sydney Powell, um, who was one of um, Trump's lawyers, uh, although her capacity was never actually clear, it was unofficial. But they thought Sydney Powell was talking r- rubbish, and that's the way they were texting each other. Mm. And the other, the other admission, I think, that was important. So there was a lot of texts and emails and uh, so forth to that effect. The other thing that was important was that um, was that. It revealed in in his sworn testimony in confidential uh, deposition that Rupert gave, um, I think it was in January, it might have been February, January, February, earlier this year, I think it was January, uh, Rupert, uh, bearing in mind he's 92, sits down and he admits that the Fox uh, News anchors had endorsed the stolen election claims. Now, that is not a good look for Fox. But their legal case partly depended on an argument that they were just reporting something that was intrinsically newsworthy, not that they were endorsing it, just that they were reporting it. And uh, and Rupert conceded that actually some of the biggest stars had endorsed the stolen election claims, and that was pretty damaging. The other thing that was damaging just to round it off is to is to hear the way um the way people like Tucker Carlson who you know really appealed to the magA base um really per- privately despise trump yeah you know Tucker Carlson saying in an email to one of his producers, I hate him passionately. I can't wait until we don't have to talk about Trump anymore. You know? And then, just actually one last thing, is, to, is, the, is the serious panic that was happening inside Fox at the at the threat that its audience would go to Newsmax and or well, One American News, which are cable channels further to the right of Fox in America, uh, that the news that the audience would uh, just abandon them as, because their ratings were tanking after they became the first network effectively to call the presidency for Biden, because they declared that um, early on election eve that Arizona, which was a swing state, had gone Biden's way, and so they were the first network. To really say Trump has lost this election, and their audience uh, abandoned them, and what it revealed is that Fox was terrified of losing its audience, and in fact uh, then had to do press the ban- panic button and make a real pivot in its editorial line uh, towards countenancing and, and, in some ways, entorsing, as Rupert Murdoch said himself, um, these baseless stolen election claims. So uh, it's a pretty, it was a pretty ugly picture.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh, I mean, I I think this this line's been reported a lot, which is um, coming from Fox saying that the settlement that they reached reflects Fox's continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards, and that has been ridiculed. But by going by what you just said there, Paddy, um, you know what is driving these standards?
2: Uh, Well, that's a really big question. You know, that goes to the history of why Fox News was founded in the first place, because Rupert Murdoch and Roger Ailes and a lot of people on the conservative side in the United States believe that the whole media skewed left. They called CNN uh, the Clinton News Network, was the way Roger Ailes used to describe um, CNN. And, you know, Rupert Murdoch, in a kind of long-standing rivalry uh, with Ted Turner, the founder of CNN, he wanted to have a right-leaning conservative media channel and believed that... Uh, and, had you know, set up a uh, network of television, Fox television stations, as a kind of competitor to uh, the three existing uh, broadcast networks. And he... uh, So they have always um, taken a conservative uh approach you know, slant um, in their editorial line. And, uh, you know, Roger Ailes' genius was to um, do that in a way that, you know, as the, the moniker for Fox News always was, we report, you decide, or that they they would... They had a slogan that they, they were fair and balanced, whereas the rest of the media was, uh, was skewed and slanted to the left. So, so you know, their, their, their editorial approach uh is unashamedly right-wing and once you but the problem is once you decide that you are going to be a conservative network um you risk the accusation that you've become partisan and uh and and they've faced that accusation ever since they uh were founded um in 1996 so But the, you know the, the the truth for Fox News is that the ratings justify the editorial line, uh, and that's the way that's the way the Murdochs talk and that's the way Lachlan talks uh, about Fox News. Uh, it's. Uh, and in fact, he goes. He would go in and say that you know more independents and actual Democrat voters watch Fox News uh, than the other two cable networks. You know, uh, MSNBC or MBC. So, um, so or CNN. Sorry. Um, so, um, so, you know, The re- the ratings, in a sense, are just become a justification for the for the editorial position. And look. Uh, it's not for me to defend their editorial, uh, but I think, you know, you've got to ask, and this is something James Murdoch, Lachlan's kind of rival and now quite, uh, you know, really he's taken on a role of a critic of Fox News in a way. Um, you know, where is the line where, you, where you've actually stopped telling the truth to your audience? And the mantra inside Fox News in the wake of the 2020 election was we need to respect the audience. But the way they did that was deciding that that meant lying to the audience to tell them what they wanted to hear, Yeah, even though they knew it was not true.
1: Speaking with journalist Paddy Manning, all about the, the settlement of the landmark defamation action in the United States between Fox News and Dominion, a voting machine manufacturer. and And on that, I mean... Fox News is facing a larger lawsuit, in fact, from another voting machine manufacturer, Smartmatic, which was worth uh, US $2.7 billion. The Dominion lawsuit was seeking $1.6 billion initially. And and I guess in terms of the the implications, what we might see from that, but also broader implications for the extent to which Fox and its rivals, such as OAN and Newsmax, might sort of lean into spreading conspiracy theories, are there big implications at all, do you think, for the nature of that kind of partisan journalism in the U.S.?
2: Uh, no, because the ratings haven't suffered. The conservative audience for Fox News uh, is not aware of, or barely aware of, the Dominion settlement. It, it, that hasn't been covered on Fox News. They don't trust. The, they're not reading the New York Times. They're not watching CNN, where this is where all this um, is being played out and reported. And so uh, their ratings so far are unaffected. The Smartmatic case is as a bigger dollar figure, but Smartmatic is a smaller, has had a much smaller role in the. Uh, 2020 election. They were only, their machines were only used in one county in LA, which was a solid blue state. There's no and it had no bearing on the election result. Um, they've got a clear cut case, but it's not. Uh, but uh, in some ways, they're a lesser plaintiff, and uh, so there's a real and and it's in a different jurisdiction of New York. That case uh, and it's not expected to be heard until 2025. Mm. So. Fox at this point, and the share price shows you this, Fox and its investors at this point are not worried about Smartmatic uh, anywhere to anywhere near the same extent that they were worried about the Dominion uh, case. So, and it's um, so anyway so it could it could you know the other the other thing that could happen is that um, is that there are shareholder lawsuits that are now being filed filed against uh, the Murdochs and the board of um, Fox for allowing these false claims to um, go to air which has cost the um, company so much money in terms of uh, the payout uh, but I should say also I think there's a kind of silver lining because uh, for Fox in that the Um, same companies, Dominion and Smartmatic, are also suing, uh, Newsmax and, uh, One American News Network. So that, so that if Newsmax and OAN are facing these huge payouts, they are not in the same position as Fox. Uh, they don't have a business that can, uh, cope with these payouts. So there might be a silver lining in that it takes out some right-wing competitors to Fox, um, uh, you know, as a result of the same, uh, you know, endorsement of the big lie.
0: So much going on. Um, I mean, if we bring it to Australia, talking about sort of a, a smaller matter um, facing the the Murdochs legally, um, and, you know, and also um, foot on the other shoe here with what happened with Crikey, uh, Patty, with regards to uh, that being discontinued by Lachlan Murdoch, maybe probably easier for you to give a bit of a, a quick update on what that defamation case was about here in Australia, but also any implications for for the Murdochs in Australia um, after discontinuing that case?
2: Yeah, um, that's an interesting one because I think the best interpretation I saw of that uh, Lachlan dropping his lawsuit against Crikey was that it was a kind of win-win for both Lachlan and for Crikey. Um, Lachlan had sued uh, Crikey uh, in a personal capacity, not as, you know, chair of News Corporation or Fox or anything like that, over an article that was um, written uh, last year which described the Murdochs as unindicted co-conspirators with Donald Trump in the January 6th insurrection. Uh, So... Now, Australia, as you made the point, Dylan, earlier, Australia is actually, you know, much different to the United States. It's actually the defamation capital of the world. We've got... This was an important case because we've got... We've had an overhaul to try and um, allow greater freedom to journalists to write, you know, in in the public interest. Um, And... Uh, this case was looming as a potential the first test case of those new public interest of, a new public interest defence that's been included in national defamation laws. Um, but what uh, I think, you know, um, Lachlan had objected to being called uh, effectively a c- criminal conspirator with Donald Trump. It's interesting if you look at the evidence that's come out of Dominion. In some ways, it shows the Murdochs. Um, were doing the opposite. They were absolutely not um, uh, conspiring uh, with Donald Trump. They didn't believe that. They didn't believe the election was stolen at all. Uh, on the other hand, they did pivot in their coverage so that you know they gave you know airtime to those stolen election claims, even though they knew they were baseless. Um, Crikey was trying to uh, include the. Um, all the material discovered in the Dominion case in its defence to Lachlan's defamation lawsuit here in Australia, and that was currently before the judge. We didn't get a ruling on that, Um, but it was not automatic that that would be approved and uh, um, that that would be allowed, and that threatened to put the trial date back from what was um, a date set down in October to sometime next year. So from Fox's point of view and from Lachlan's point of view, um, he believed that he had had some measure of vindication in the case already, in that the case had re- revealed that there was a there was a deliberate marketing attempt, a marketing campaign that was kind of. Built around republishing the article um, that the original article uh, that, that called the Murdochs a um co-conspirator, and and that um, and that was the point at which you know Crikey effectively dared Lachlan to sue them uh, and put ads in the New York Times and the Australian, I think it was the Australian and the Fairfax papers here, um, to say uh, you know uh, we're going to we, we believe this article is in the public interest, and they started to raise a whole lot of money as a, as part of yeah. a fighting fund and uh and but i think that i think that um, there would be, you know, the case did have huge risks for Crikey. There were plenty of lawyers who would tell you that they um, they would not going to be find much comfort in the public interest defence. Crikey had conceded there was no evidence whatsoever that the uh, Murdochs had conspired with Donald Trump, um, and, and they, their argument was that no ordinary reader would have taken the article that way. Um, it, it was a risky case for Crikey, and so I think although they are claiming a win here, they will they would likely be Relieved that their business and their company is not on the line.
1: Yeah, what a wild story this all is! It's uh, it's been so great having your insights on the show this morning, Paddy. And look, one benefit of the defamation action being settled is that you're up at this time and could have a chat with us today on um, on Triple R. So thanks so much for your insights and all
2: the best. Thanks so much. Good to talk.
1: Triple R.
0: Uh, it's lovely to have Chris Ennis uh, on again from Ceres Fair Food. Ceres is an environment park in East Brunswick, not too far from the Triple R studios, in fact. And last time we spoke to you, Chris, we were talking about flowers, spray free flowers from local suppliers versus imported roses covered in pesticide yeah. and plastic. And now you're here to let us know about a kind of a uh, well, not new, but a, a sort of unknown segment of the fruit and veg market called integrated pest management farmer produce. Uh, I don't know what exactly to name it as, but uh, it's not organic in the certified sense, but it's, it's also not in the sort of conventional fruit and veg area as well, which can be you know heavy pesticide use. So yeah, tell us about what is integrated pest management farming?
3: Well, thanks for having me. Um, really great to be back on again. Um, integrated Pest Management, the name isn't very catchy. We're going <laughs> to
0: make it catchy right now today. Yep.
3: Um, earlier this year and um, towards the end of last year, we were really noticing how much people were hurting um, cost of living wise and our customers were telling us, We want to buy organics. We really want to support um, organic farmers and organic agriculture, but we can't afford it. And this got us thinking, um, if you can't afford organics, what's the next best option and what's out there? And so about 10 years before, I'd been um, having problems with our aquaponics basil crop and with all this white fly that was growing on on you know all this white fly which you know sucking the sap out of our beautiful basil crop, and I'd seen something on integrated pest management with a farmer called um, Adam Shura down in Devon Meadows, which is down near Cranbourne, and he was introducing um, a beneficial bugs, ladybirds, lacewings into his crops to. Conf- to um, control aphids and um, corn earworms, and um, and it just it it stuck in my mind, and and so I started looking back into this thing called integrated pest management, and discovered there were all these farmers out there um, that were using these sustainable methods um, that involved not spraying um, and and monitoring their crops. Um, until they found a pest. And then when there was a pest, dealing with it with a targeted spray that might be organic, um, but only targeted that insect, say that um, that caterpillar um, or um, that aphid, and left those ladybirds and lacewings alone. And it was like, okay, let's go see what these farmers are doing and, and perhaps we can bring in um, some of this produce so that people have another option.
1: Yeah, well, And so does it require paying very careful attention, I suppose, to particular crops and particular types of fruit and vegetables that might be susceptible to some pests and treating them independently?
3: Yeah. So conventional produce usually takes a, you know, we're going to just use a broad-spectrum spray um, and spray each week and just make sure there are no insects at all and sort of bomb the crop and it makes it clean and that's a really easy way to produce, you know, the supermarket-quality produce that you see. Whereas IPM, they do a lot of monitoring and they do lots of trapping and um, and and seeing what's in the crop. So if you don't have pests, why spray? I mean, you're spending money in unnecessarily, and you're exposing your workers and your customers to you know you know not great chemicals. Um, so, it's really, you know, it's led by entomologists. So, an amazing man called um, Paul Horn from La Trobe University led this about 20 years ago, and he has trained hundreds of farmers and other agronomists how to use these techniques. And they involve, you know, cultural, biological, and chemical um, strategies that might be crop rotation. So, pests get confused about where the where the crop's going, um, they might be green manuring. Um, they might be um, sacrifice crops that you know those insects might go to instead of your crop. Um, so um, this is there's um, yeah there uh, it's a different philosophy, I guess. Mm-hmm. One's preventative and one's really much more sort of pragmatic and reactionary.
0: And and from the sort of consumer point of view, they're currently. All one category, though in, yeah. in in the supermarket aisle, whether it's come from a IPM practicing farmer or or someone yeah. someone else, it all looks the same. But you're seeing that there is this sort of market segmentation there, that is, you know, maybe not have have the the uh, certification of organics, but is the next best thing if you're going to start to diversify your your food produce box? Yeah,
3: well, IPM farmers created their own label and they went to the supermarket and said, differentiate us from, you know, conventional produce. We're doing this great sustainable stuff. And the supermarkets... You know, we know how important uh, their, you know, fresh image is and you they always lead. You walk into a supermarket, the, f- the first thing you see is the fresh aisles. Um, they... Always um, advertise themselves as not the two minute noodle or the carbonated um, drinks people, they're the fresh food people. And it's just this is a critical, critical um, group of lines for supermarkets to project their fresh image. Um, So if one group of farmers are going, we're more sustainable. Um, it means having to talk about those other farmers who heavily rely on broad spectrum, you know, mm. insecticides and pesticides. Um, and that's a conversation when, you know, um, when you rely on fresh so heavily that supermarkets don't want to have. So they said, we're not going to go there. And that's why, you know, we don't hear about IPM farming. How widespread is it? Um it's very widespread now. 20 years ago, Paul Horn led the charge, and now you could you could look up IPM on any state agriculture website. All agronomists would be at least aware of it, and most would know how to implement it. So it's definitely out there, and it's mainstream. It's just really it's really surprised me that No one hears about it. No one knows about this group of sustainable farmers. And that's why we went, okay, this is something that we can present to our customers and it's going to cost, you know, 30% less than most organic produce. Yeah.
0: And, I mean, are you already seeing an interest and an understanding of what IPM is even in with your, your customers there at Series Fair Food?
3: So there's been lots of questions. And because it's new, um, and we've been doing lots of, um, you know, lots of stories and lots of, um, talking about the farmers and how they, how they work, you know, talking about it's not organic. It's, um, it's not, you know, it's less sprays, it's not spray free like organics. Um, and, um, what, you know, that, um, what do I want to say, um, that it, it, it's it's just a it's a different option, and a different group of farmers that are taking a sustainable road, you know, to the same place, but in a different route. And the take up has been, you know, I was just saying to you guys uh, last week, our most popular fruit and veg box uh, last week was an IPM box. Mm. And so, what people were telling us about wanting to, you know, buy organics but um, not being able to afford it—it's really playing out in what we're seeing. Our customers are buying, and so, um, you know, we're bringing in another box, and we're, we're looking for more IPM farmers to to broaden that range, so that we can uh, we can help people um, access these farmers. Because otherwise, um, there's no way there's actually no way to go to a greengrocer or a supermarket and say, I'd like IPM produce.
1: Well, that's right because I imagine this just makes a lot of sense for yeah. people who can't afford organic, particularly at the moment, but yeah. want to be sourcing relatively yeah. sort of sustainable fruit and veg. So so is there really no or very limited other resources for people to find out more about this and access them if that's how they want to purchase?
3: So there's a little label on some IPM growers' boxes that just – it's a diamond that says IPM or one's a circle with a little butterfly with IPM written under it. If you look under the shelf, you go to your supermarket and you go look under your shelf. Under the go, shelf. Are you for real? Like
0: literally if you, you get down go, on you.
3: And you could go, IPM. oh, this lettuce is IPM. Wow. Um, it's, it's, these are conventional growers who are in your supermarkets who are big suppliers. They are very sophisticated, um, high-volume farmers, and that is a way that you could hack the, or if you, you do. If you feel
1: a bit self conscious doing that, if you've got a kid running around with you, enlist them to find the uh, the IPM stickers. That's,
0: <laughs> That's a good strategy. It's like, <clears throat> I've got to do up my shoelaces. Yeah. I'm like, Quick, let me look under the
1: box. True. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> We're well,
0: speaking with Chris and his um, series Fair Food and finding out about integrated pest management farmers, IPM farmers, which are doing things differently uh, with less. their less pesticide heavy um, produce options out there. And I mean, I didn't ask you this earlier, what's in it for IPM farmers, Chris? I mean, we get this sense that the that sort of more conventional farmer approach, which you described earlier, where you kind of spray everything in a preventative way is the way you make money, but yeah. but you're sort of indicating that IPM farmers are making money and they are high, pro- high um, turnover businesses, yeah. but they're doing it in this different way.
3: There's a few reasons. Um, one was about... 20 years ago uh, farmers you'll know this caterpillar from the end of your corn if you've ever opened up a, an ear of corn and they've seen a caterpillar in the end um, this particular caterpillar which also um, attacks green leafy veg tomatoes um, became uh, resistant to all the pesticides available about 15 or 20 years ago it's a big problem where a bee and you know all the big cropping areas. And and this was an opening for farmers to go, we need something else. And this is where Paul Horn, the Latrobe entomologist, came in and started um, teaching farmers how to, you know, use IPM technology. But you gotta remember also farmers are on the front line and their family, you know, often it's their kids who are in the fields working with them and their workers are the ones who are exposed to sprays. And when they You know, when you see there's illness in your family, and um, you know your loved ones are suffering because of the chemicals you're using, there's a lot of motivation to move away from that. And farmers, they they don't want to, you know, they don't want to be sick themselves or their workers to be sick. Um, So there's a huge, you know, there's a big motivation to be able to go. Look, um, is there another way? And if there's another way, I can use it. And often it's the gateway to go. Oh, what other things? could I do you know in terms of looking after my soil and there's things like precision agriculture where oh how little water can I use and direct it how little how little fertiliser can I just direct it to one spot by monitoring? And so all these techniques that IPM kind of introduce farmers to open them up to often, you know, we see them doing, oh, we're doing composting now. We'll do hand weeding. We'll do, you know, all these other sort of techniques that lead them down a sustainability road. So, yeah.
1: And so, so what's um just in terms of, of series fair food? What's popping off currently? What's what's in season down there that's sort of caught your eye um, over the past so couple of weeks?
3: Broccoli's just flying out the door, cauliflowers, celery, uh, cucumbers, uh, all, you know, these, the the greens are really big and um, they've been the first group of farmers that we've found lettuce, um, salad mix, um, spinach leaves, um, those kind of thing. And we're really sort of, we'll move into autumn fruits soon and, and, you know, berries as well. Mm.
0: Absolutely beautiful. And I must say, just like a final thought, Chris, I mean, Where we do see a lot of differentiation is on the egg box shelf and I wonder if it's because they come in boxes that that farmers have the opportunity to label those individually because we do get the full organic plus the um, free range plus the um, cage or whatever, you know, we we do get that huge differentiation and you see people choosing and looking at the boxes and looking at the price. Yeah. So. Is that maybe a sort of a a leader or an indicator that there is this sophistication in the consumer base that we do understand the differences? Yes, I
3: I think the sophistication is there. I think the supermarket just think eggs as one line. Just think of the produce section. Imagine if you had three different choices in every section and um, how to separate and treat those, especially things that come loose. It's also a logistical nightmare. Um, for supermarkets to have to do that, and I think you know it's better if they, you know, they have a huge amount of control. If they were the ones that led their suppliers to go I, IPM and go that way rather than try and you know differential re- differentiate you know three types of produce I mean already the way they do organics is like put it in a styrofoam base and put a glad wrap over yeah that's yeah. Off, the that's off-putting for some isn't which it is, too yeah. which is a nightmare
0: yeah well series fair food is trying it out and uh, and making yeah making that option very clear to people and Chris it's been great to have you back in thanks heaps. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Grey corruption, tentacles of influence coming from the Premier's private office and debate around the age of criminal responsibility. There is a lot happening in Victorian politics and so it's great to have Benita Kolovos with us again, state political reporter at Guardian Australia. And uh, hello, Benita, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Ah, It's great to have you there and and we need you to help us um, understand (laughs) a little bit of what's going on with with Victorian politics. We heard last week from the Victorian anti-corruption watchdog... Uh, IBAC that uh, they found, they cleared Premier Dan Andrews and his Ministers of Corrupt Conduct, but found grey corruption in the Victorian government. Uh, Yeah, I suppose, tell
4: us how serious this is, Benita. So this is something that the former IBAC Commissioner Robert Redlich has been warning about for some time, this idea of um, grey or soft corruption. So it doesn't reach that benchmark of you know criminal conduct but um, it is you know helping mates out or um, you know promotions to the boys that sort of thing and it's not just an issue here even in this report it said it's an issue all across Australian politics and global politics as well so this report was into a grant that was awarded to a health workers union um, to provide some training for Occupational violence um, to hospital workers, um, but what what was found was it didn't go through a procurement process. Um, minister, health ministers meet like uh, not media advisor, their ministerial advisor, sorry, and the premier's um, advisor was kind of lobbying the health department to give the union the grant. Um, you know, um, even emailing like junior officers and asking why is it taking so long. Um, So definitely a power imbalance there. And it also, I kind of think, highlights um, that weird role that ministerial advisors play in um, how government works and, I guess, the growing influence they have on how government works.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, the Premier, in his press conference following this report, described it as educational and, you know, highlighted how there was not a finding of corruption here and no sort of criminal conduct. But I mean, does that suggest that he wasn't aware that some of these processes were untoward?
4: Yeah, well, he says he he wasn't aware of it. Um, The health minister, when she was told what her ministerial advisor was up to, said she wasn't aware of it either. Um, But is that not an issue in itself? Um, Mm. I think, you know, when we put that To the Premier um, kind of shrugged it off as he did that whole press conference. Um, And yes, it's true that there wasn't adverse findings made against ministers. It's also important to note that IBAC's threshold is actually really, really high to make a finding of corrupt conduct. Um, When we look at New South Wales, their ICAC system, it's a lot lower of a threshold. Um, Here it has to be criminal Conduct like a criminal level of corruption, um, which obviously this doesn't get to. Um, and you know, there's been calls following this report that we kind of bring Victoria into line with New South Wales on that front. I
0: and mean, what about the premier's reaction, Benita? Uh, I mean, what did, did it give you? I suppose do you, do you think it gave the, the the people of Victoria a sense that the government will act to stem you know the so-called grey corruption? Oh. <laughs> Um, I don't ask it so, to true. be cheeky, but it was just really hard to read because dismissing findings, I mean, there were 17 recommendations. Yeah. It's, then um, what happens com- to them?
4: I compared it to when the branch stacking report came out, I think it was July last year, he came to that press conference the day that the report was released, accepting all of the recommendations and actually going further than the re- recommendations in toughening up um, some procedures and policy. Um, He apologised, said, you know, it was really like rotten, the state of the Victorian Labor Party in the wake of that report. Whereas this time he said, you know, I haven't taken these recommendations to Cabinet. I'm going to assess them in, you know, in time. I'm not going to rush it. And he wouldn't apologise because he said he didn't know what had gone on and it wasn't corrupt conduct. So it was a really different approach. Um, The cynic in me would say um, the... Operation Watch report was into some of his, I guess, factional enemies or the people on the other side of Labor, the Labor mm. right. Um, so maybe it, it was okay for him to, to accept it and, you know, those people are no longer Labor and Peace, whereas now this is kind of talking to the culture within his government. Um, so a bit harder to have a crack at, I guess, when they're pointing the finger in you, like, you know, at you and in your office.
1: Yeah that's right and and I mean he you know he, he said in in that um that press conference how Some of the people implicated in that report, such as Jenny McCarkos and and Jill Hennessy, are no longer around, and some of those staffers aren't either. But as you say, this points to kind of more, I suppose, structural issues and and issues of culture in the Mm centralisation of power in the Premier's office and also the role of ministerial advisers and uh, some public servants as well, and the capacity for those advisers to pressure public servants to sort of adopt certain proposals and the like. Can you talk to us a little bit more about That, what was revealed about the role of especially advisors through this inquiry?
4: So advisors are kind of in a a grey area and there's not really a um, strict code of conduct that applies to them, um, which obviously was one of the recommendations of IBAC is to have a really clear um, description of what their role is, a really clear code of conduct. So at the moment, um, they're kind of like in between. So the public service is independent, it's meant to be fear and, you know, provide frankless advice to the government and then you've got the government which is you know politicized um you know you are labor you've got you know your ideology that comes with that and the people that you hire are going to be of the same sort of ilk um but then you know what's meant to be a relationship between say the health minister and then her department you've got this sort of middle person um which isn't as regulated but doesn't have the same accountability as a minister and one of the integrity experts i was saying said that this can actually, they can kind of be scapegoated because there's no real sanction on the ministerial advisor and then also two ministers can say, well, I didn't know what they were doing. So it's a really, um, I don't want to use the word grey again, but, like, it's a really grey area, like, um, the role that they play. Um, And the report was really, you know, made it really clear, like, they were going to junior procurement officers, and they, you know, in IVAC's report, the advisor that it was speaking about was saying that they didn't think that they were, you know, leaning on the junior um, procurement officer when they were asking them, why is it taking so long? Can I get an update on this? Um, what's going on? We need to get this done. But I think that doesn't take into account the power imbalance there. If this person works for the minister, you're going to a really junior staff member trying to hurry them along in approving a grant. Um you know, if I was the the junior staffer, I'd be like, oh, God, I've got to get it done. Now, that that's, shouldn't be the way that it works. It, they should be able to go through all the checks and balances when they're approving, you know, millions of dollars of, of grant money.
0: And, I, I mean, I, I you know, understand that a separate investigation by the ombudsman here in Victoria is is underway as well into, into the politicisation of the public servant. When will we see more about that?
4: Um last time I asked the Ombudsman's office they said that it was continuing. Um I had heard like middle of the year but I'm not sure um where that one's at. A lot of people are you know very interested in seeing what comes from from that report. Um and, you know, this isn't the only time that these issues have been raised. They were raised in Operation Watts. They have been raised in Ombudsman reports and the like. Um, and, yeah, the centralisation of the Premier's office, I guess, is the key key thing that we're hearing. And we had both Hennessy and Makarkos, the two previous health ministers, complaining about how the Premier was, you know, interfering in their portfolio, which is, you know... A concern that even your health minister, the person you've appointed to do this job, can't do their job properly because of interference from the Premier's office.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in in New South Wales, we've seen inquiries into corruption and integrity lead to premiers resigning or being nudged out, despite some of, uh, you know, kind of similar, I suppose, types of inquiries launched by IBAC here in Victoria. There hasn't really been sort of a a lot of pressure, I suppose, on the premier to take that kind of drastic action. I mean, what do you think comes from this latest finding and, and what are the implications for Andrews and his uh, role as premier.
4: I think um, there's always comparisons with New South Wales and obviously Gladys Berejiklian being the latest New South Wales premier to resign due to an anti-corruption investigation. Um, I do think they are different in the sense that the Premier hasn't been directly implicated in any of these so far. It's been the people around him, whether that's his MPs with Operation Watts, whether that's um, the advisers in Operation Baintree, whereas, you know, Gladys Berejiklian was, was dating a guy and, you know, he was doing some rather um, dodgy stuff and even her on the phone to him, like they had tapped their conversations and she was saying, I don't need to know about that yeah. bit. Like, that, that's an acknowledgement that he's doing something um, that you don't want to know about. It must be wrong. Um, there hasn't been that with the Premier so far, like an like an absolute direct link to him knowing or him doing something um, that, you know, could be constituted as corrupt. Um, and also, too, back to that idea of the benchmark here being a lot higher to have that finding of corrupt conduct. Like, there hasn't been in any of the investigations so far a finding like that, um which you know, goes to whether that needs to be toughened up. I think it's also worth noting there's two more IBAC um, investigations that have interviewed the Premier that are yet to come out yet. Um, they concern like property developers in... That one's called Operation Sandin, and then there's Operation Richmond into the firefighter's pay agreement. Um, again, Premier's been interviewed by both. Uh, we don't know how much involvement he has in either of them just yet but I think they're both due this year too. So um, I don't think it's all over it. I don't think you can just you know, brush this one off as educational and then move on. There's, there's going to be some more coming soon.
1: Yeah watch this space.
0: Yeah and, and uh, as you mentioned Benita we don't know what will happen with those seven recommendations from the the Operation Daintree so-called um, from IBAC so watch we'll watch that as well. Um, just uh, some other matters that came up last week um, particular the one around criminal responsibility and mm-hmm. uh, for those that are following uh, you'll know that in Victoria and other states um, 10 years old is the age of criminal responsibility. There is uh, the idea that this could raise, um, be raised to 12 years old human rights groups and others are calling it for, to be 14 as a minimum. Where's this debate at, Benita?
4: So apparently it's going to be before um, Cabinet this afternoon. So um, the Attorney-General will probably put a proposal to all the ministers um, on where to raise it. The, the reports are saying that it's going to be twelve. Um, although I'm hearing some mixed things, and it always is a little bit mixed when it hasn't kind of been ticked off by cabinet yet. So we should know more in coming days. I have heard that it could be twelve, and then like there's a step, some steps towards fourteen. Whether that's through like um, you know a two-stage process, whether it's let's do twelve and then. Um, Reassess in a couple of years. I think that's what the Northern Territory has committed to, and then in Tasmania, it is um, minimum age of detention is twelve. So there still is, um, you know, criminal responsibility if you've committed an offence in that you know ten to twelve age group. You can still be punished, but you can't be detained. So I'm hearing lots of different things. I think we'll find out more um, by the end of today. Tomorrow morning, um, all the Attorney Generals from across the country are meeting on Friday to discuss it as well. This has been going on for, for years at a federal level, trying to come up with a national sort of consensus on what the age of criminal responsibility should be, but it just doesn't appear to be happening. Obviously, we've got different politics in different states. Um, I personally can't see Queensland, for example, where you know they've been really, really tough on youth crime agreeing to raising the age of criminal responsibility. So it wouldn't surprise me if Victoria does go it alone and the government has committed to doing it alone if they can't get it
1: through on a Ye- national level. Yeah, a lot of people have been waiting a long time for an announcement on this. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's good that at least that seems to be imminent. And just lastly, we've got a state budget coming up quite soon. Um, the, the government has flagged that there looks like being cuts to major prote- uh, projects like the airport rail and so on. Um, what are you predicting that, that we might... Sort sort of see in that budget uh, within the next month?
4: Yeah, um, unfortunately for everyone. I think it's been like 30, 40, 50 years that they've been waiting for airport rail. Um, it might not be coming anytime time soon. I think that's probably first on the chopping block for the government. Um, I think Jacinta Allen, the Transport Infrastructure Minister, she came out a couple of weeks ago and confirmed that the timeline will be delayed. So they're not calling it a cut. I guess they're just <laughs> pushing back the funding um, to a later date when the state can probably afford it a bit more. Um, Geelong Fast Rail as well, I think, is on that list. Um, and then, like, local road projects. I think they're just trying to find anywhere that they can save a penny or two. We obviously know that the government borrowed billions of dollars during the pandemic. We know interest rates have gone up. Um the households. We probably should expect the same for the state budget um, and I think there's also on the cards a 10% cut to the public service so this is not going to be from all the conversations I've had with Labour and MPs so far. It's not going to be a you know traditional Tim Palace, um, Daniel Andrews budget where they you know have some exciting announcements bit of cash to splash. It's probably going to be a, a pretty tough one.
0: And, I mean, do you think any government ever, if they delay the airport rail, could ever talk airport rail again? <laughs> well,
4: they keep doing so it. They, it's just laughable. They keep doing it all the time. doesn't matter if they're Labor or they're Liberal. Um, it, it's always one that seems to be on the cards until it's not. Um, it's not even so, that far
0: away from the city, the it's, airport. It's crazy.
4: <laughs> and, you know, we're going to be, I think, bigger than Sydney um, well, I think we've already overtaken Sydney. Um, wasn't that the news yeah, last week? But now was we're bigger. Yeah. Um, and we don't have an airport rail. Um, it's, it seems quite wild. Like you know, I lived in Sydney for a while, and it was just so easy to get from the city the airport. There's a train all the
0: way from Adelaide to Darwin.
1: (laughs) Going to have to keep dreaming on that one for a while longer.
0: (laughs) Um, Thank you so much Benita. It's always great to have you on Triple R and yeah, lots to talk about. Thanks for um, hanging out this morning. Thank you so much. Have
4: a good rest of
1: the day. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect hit us up via the Triple R website.